Design touches everything. The way we learn, the way we communicate, the way we live. And Boston has always been at the center of it. This is the Boston Design Cast presented by AIJ Boston. I'm Sarah Kroll. And I'm Michael Coleman. We're here to highlight the greater Boston design community and introduce you to designers who not only make great work, but challenge what design can be today. I'm Sarah Kroll Lincoln, and this is the Boston Design Cast presented by AIJ Boston. It's not a secret that technology is moving so fast it's hard to keep up, especially design education. In the last few decades, the way that we think about design has dramatically changed. So how are students keeping up? That's what we're talking about today. I'm here with Heather Shaw, Associate Professor at Lesley University and Graphic Designer. She's lectured nationally and internationally on the integration of dynamic media with traditional graphic design pedagogy. Heather's professional experience also spans print, motion, and interactive media with clients including MIT, Brandeis University, Perkins School for the Blind, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. She also sits on the advisory board for AIJ Boston. Welcome to the show, Heather. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. We're so excited to have you here too, especially to talk about this. This is like near and dear to my heart, oh. as you know. <laughs> So why don't you, uh, we, well, let's get started, and why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so my undergraduate degree is a BFA in visual design from the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, and then um, I worked in a creative agency called White Rhino Productions uh, for about six years after that, and um, it was a really great experience. It was kind of a creative firm, but with a startup mentality, so we would often bring new products to market. Um, a lot of times if our clients asked us if we did something, we would just say yes and figure it out. So it was a really exciting time because it was in sort of the, the early to mid-90s and um, it was when the web was just starting to kind of find its own and it was really kind of the Wild West and it was a lot of fun. After um, working professionally for about seven years, I went back to school to get my, my master's degree um, and I, I have an MFA in dynamic media from um, the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, and then you know went into teaching after that. What does a degree in dynamic media look like compared to especially like more maybe more traditional graphic design? Yeah, so it's really interesting because I went back in 2001 for my master's, and I had been working for quite some time in industry, and a lot of my industry experience was primarily um, print-based. I had done some websites, and I had been doing long time ago, some work in Macromedia Director, which some of the newer listeners had probably never heard of. Um, but I was, I was making decisions in interactive work that I felt like wasn't fully informed. There was something missing in the work that I was making. I felt like there was a gap in my understanding. So when I went to the Dynamic Media Institute, um, we started to learn about things like information architecture. And it was like, oh, okay, now everything makes sense. Like, every button, every element on this interface has a reason to be there and I know where it goes. So for me, my study in interactive media really is how I got to understand design in the first place because with visual design, 
you're making choices. You're making some aesthetic choices. You're making type choices. And some of it might be historically driven or contextually driven by a client. But still, there's a lot of arbitrary decisions to be made with traditional graphic design, like six-column grid, three-column grid, you know? Um, and those are choices that you make maybe based on the amount of content you're working with and pushing and pulling. But I felt like when I really went into interactive, suddenly all my decisions had to be grounded. Everything was incredibly purposeful. So for me, that's what it, what it looked like, was not that design didn't have a purpose before, but it had... In my mind, I, I looked at it in a very different way with a very different purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, wanted to ask, so after you got your master's degree, how and why did you become a design educator? Yeah, well, I had, um, after working in industry for a while, and I still continue to work in industry, um, I really wanted to teach. I wanted to find ways to, to interact with students more. We had had an intern at the studio, and I just loved working with the intern. We had had a lot of um, junior level freelance designers and I had been mentoring them on a lot of projects so I felt really ready to be in a classroom but I found it really hard to get adjunct positions because I didn't have any connections in the design educators world and it's, it's a small world and we hire a lot of professional designers as adjunct faculty but unless you know someone that then knows someone it's really hard to break into teaching without having those contacts so I knew that the best way to really get access to teaching was to get my MFA because that's that's a terminal degree should I decide at the time I wasn't sure but if I wanted to become a professor or teach full-time you know I'd need an MFA to do that mm -hmm. and it definitely like it opened the door in case you decided to go down that route which yeah I mean it changed everything for mm -hmm. me I mean I was getting an MFA for really practical purposes which was I want to teach I need an MFA but when I went to the Dynamic Media Institute, it was like, oh, I'm thinking about design in a completely different way now, and it completely changed the trajectory of even my professional career. Currently, I, I'm affiliated with a studio called Nisoft Design in Lexington, and I still work there. So I teach, you know, Monday through Thursday, and then on Fridays, I, you know, I, I go to work in a studio and have the studio experience. And I really love working there because most of the work. Um, that the studio focuses on is uh, universities and nonprofits, and it's just really fulfilling work. And I don't know that I would have had this opportunity had I not gotten an MFA, having worked in um, on the corporate side of things, but also more commercially based work. Um, and it was exciting. I mean, all of these work experience lead up to what make you become a well-rounded educator later on. Yeah, definitely. And that. That actually is a perfect segue to my next question is what what's different about the design industry now that wasn't true five years ago, 10 years ago, or even 15 years ago? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think at the core, um, all design programs still value visual acuity. They're all going to have some thread of typography, visual design, uh, visual communication. So I don't see that going away, but I think Christopher Pullman, I think he said it best in his article, and this was in 2005, called Some Things Change, Some Things Stay the Same. And, and to quote him, uh, he wrote, once the designer's art was composition and now it's choreography. In a fluid 4D world, the problem is not so much to get the fixed thing right as to find an elegant sequence of evolving relationships. And I, I think that's where we're at, is we're looking at now student work isn't about sort of designing just a one-off poster and making sure that everything's aligned and everything kind of has this clear visual aesthetic. 
we're looking at solving uh, much bigger problems. And those problems are becoming bigger and more ambiguous. So I'm finding now as a result of these changes, I mean, just in my own course design, some things that I'm seeing that are different is that we're shifting away from classroom learning to more experiential learning. So we're having students more often work with real user experts, real people, and do a lot of research based on their insights and their experiences. Um, we're shifting away from just focusing on the problem, but to focusing on a user's needs. You know, so design has become a lot more human-centered. Um, and it's, it's not really about us sitting in a room and trying to come up with this magical solution. It's really about engaging people as part of the conversation. We don't just sit around and wait for inspiration anymore. Like, like inspiration only happens when we emphasize research methods. Absolutely. So that's, uh, I think, a real key change in our curriculum now is we have uh, required uh, design thinking and research class that all first-year students and all transfer students take in their course of study in the program. I was just going to ask, too, like how early does that start? I, I know in my own, I got my BFA with a, con a BFA with a concentration in design, and I didn't have web until... Like I think my second semester, my sophomore year, so not until pretty much like halfway through college. Yeah. And it's cool that you're starting to introduce it like in the very first one, is and even as like a part of the tool set that a student has, or yeah, a tool set to be able to like approach different problems. I think that is huge to be able to have those critical thinking and problem solving skills with the design slant to them. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, I mean, you know, a lot of schools offer design thinking classes and in, in Design thinking isn't just limited to designers either. Like we have a business program that offers design thinking courses as well. Um, you know, and they, you know, all of them at the core have a, res you know, these, these applied research methods. What we found is that introducing this course in the first year of a student study really gets them understanding um, that it's not just about making things pretty. You know, a lot of students come into design, whether it's graphic design or interactive design, uh, because they worked on maybe their school newspaper or they took a web class in high school and it got them really excited because there's that instant gratification of making something. Mm -hmm. But now we have to figure out like, well, what's all the stuff leading up to that making something? It's, it's all the work you do before you make work visual. Mm -hmm. And what does that process look like? And then another, another shift we're seeing is that even though we still use class critique, we also incorporate a lot of stakeholder involvement. So we bring people in at various stages of uh, the students' projects to come in and it, basically involving the decision makers as mm -hmm. part of the process, it's really important. And it also helps stakeholders to see what the design process looks like and how, how hard it really is. You know, even though something may seem simple on the outside, an identity or, you know, an app, you know, as simple as it looks, it's a lot of work to get it to that point of looking looking or interacting in the way that it does. Right. And how does this, like, how does this challenge the assumptions that students might have coming into, like, a design curriculum? Is there anything that they have expressed that maybe they're surprised or something that is, like, unexpected? Yeah, I mean, it breaks down a lot of assumptions. I mean, so fortunately, the design thinking and research class doesn't have a design designation. It's actually a history and theory course. So they come into this class, they don't really know what to expect. Um, what I love about it is it does break down their assumptions and they realize, you know, they hear the term research and they think, oh, books, papers. Um, but it's a highly experiential class. Students are um, put into teams 
Uh, and there's two faculty in the classroom. I actually don't teach the class, but the, we have two faculty in it, a design researcher and an anthropologist who teach it. And we put the students into teams, and, and the different teams are each given sort of a big, a big challenge. So for example, like food industry. So, so larger, so more, more social-based problems that they, you know, that are relatable to the students. And so each team chooses sort of this, this area of study and they work to come up with, with a prototype. So it's basically all the work they do before they make anything visual. Mm -hmm. And so what the outcomes or outputs from the class typically look like is a presentation or a very, very raw prototype. Um, and then what's great is seeing the students evaluate each other on the final day of the presentations. They're all given numbers. The students get up, they might do role playing, they do a presentation. Um, there's a way where they can do all this work and sort of cite some of the research they've done as part of it. And then you see all the teams holding up numbers, like scoring everybody, and it's hilarious. Um, and they like scorecards like in gymnastics. Yes, it's, like <laughs> it's exactly like that. And it's so exciting because the students are all, it's very rowdy, it's very exciting, but the work is still really thoughtful and meaningful because mm -hmm. it's rooted in research. Um, and it's great because they can't just hold the scorecard. Score they have to actually explain why they're giving the score that they're giving. So they understand not just the value of coming up with a prototype, but the value of the evaluative process of developing a prototype and also how to evaluate each other in a way that's smart and informed and, mm -hmm. and based off a series of, of real criteria. Have you seen any shift in like how students critique work now that they have to take that introductory course later and like when they're evaluating design work or yeah. is it more separate? I mean that's a really great question because I feel like critique, I think if it's one thing that needs to change dramatically is the way we critique work in class. So when I was a student, and granted this was like a long time ago, you would have the six hour crit, you'd hang the work, the teacher would go around the room, you know, the teacher would talk about it, and you'd just be standing there waiting for your turn. And if you were a more engaged or more vocal student, you might be able to offer critique or be able to contribute to the conversation. If you were someone like me, I was really quiet. I was afraid to speak up. Um, critique for me was, was a very passive experience. I would just sit there and kind of watch it happen. And for more than half of it, I'd probably daydreaming <laughs> about something else because <laughs> I'd be so tired. So. For me, critique is different. We, we don't run, at least I don't run long critiques. Critiques in my classes last maybe an hour. Mm -hmm. um, I usually post a series of criteria on the whiteboard that this is what you're looking for. And then I give the students either sticky notes and they have to go around and write comments on the work based around that set of criteria. Or if students are doing a lot of iterative work, I'll have them star their favorite iterations. So it's much easier in that case because then it's not me deciding like this is the better piece. It's based, it, it grows out of the group dynamic. And what's great about that is when students are walking around sort of marking up the work, it makes the work less precious. Um, but they also start talking about the work. Like, hey, do you see what this person did here? That's really interesting. So there's very little I have to do at that point. You're creating a framework for great discussion versus me telling the students or art directing them mm -hmm. as to what I feel is the stronger direction. Yeah, and that's awesome too because especially now when like design thinking is such a big, it's having a big moment right now in a corporate setting or in an in-house setting where being able to have facilitation skills is such a key thing to bring to the table to be able to go into a meeting and not just defend and describe and discuss your own work but to 
bring out some of those thoughts in, in other people who may not have had that experience either. So it's a really awesome opportunity that they get to have when they're doing work. Yeah, I mean, I don't even really call it critique anymore. I call it discussion. Mm -hmm. Because once, once you know, the students have had a chance to look at each other's work and star it and talk about it, then I can go around the room and we can then discuss, okay, these are the ones who have the most stars or the most comments or the most positive comments. You know, let's, all right, now let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. You know, let's ask the designer what their thoughts are. What were they, you know, what was their intent? So it becomes a much more dynamic conversation and it's a lot more fun for me. Um, and it doesn't put all the pressure on me to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also find that it, it becomes a more active process for the students. Um, what was the process like to change the design curriculum to get for something that was more traditional to what you have now, which is a more collaborative, more iterative process, it seems? Yeah, I, I mean, and everybody conducts their class differently, right? So, so when, when someone's teaching a class, it's their purview to teach it however they feel is the best way to teach it as long as they're meeting sort of the course objectives and the course goals. So, you know, in some cases, a long critique might be the better um, way of sort of communicating with the students, depending on the faculty member. Mm -hmm. um, I think the shift for me just grew out of my own interests and ideas and putting myself in the shoes of the students and remembering what it was like for me to be a student and sit through a critique. Um, it also grew out of other ways of doing um, sort of more, like when we do portfolio reviews, you know, um, you know, taking, sort of taking a hint from like, you know, speed dating, you know, sometimes in class we'll do speed dating techniques mm -hmm. where students will sit together and I'll, I'll time them mm -hmm. and give them the criteria and then they talk with each other. Um, but this isn't, I don't think that's necessarily like a big sort of national shift, that's more of a personal shift mm -hmm. for me. But to go back to the other question, which was how has design education kept up with the changing industry? I mean, I think arguably any good design program should be offering relevant experiences um, that prepare students to be work ready. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's the goal of the students and the goal of the program. I, I think there's a lot of good design programs out there right now and, and arguably they're all sort of keeping up with industry. I think the real goal of academia is to define what's next and to be sort of defining what those frontiers are and exploring those areas. Um, you know, right now, um, students are less and less interested in being assigned projects with a set of design visual outputs, like design three posters, now make it a postage stamp. You know, those are all great exercises for teaching visual, visual design. But I think the students are less interested in those exercises. They're more interested in, in kind of doing work that, that makes an impact, that mm -hmm. they understand that there are challenges in the world that need to be addressed. And um, so I think a lot of times we're asking, you know, what are the problems you want to solve versus what are the things you want to make? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Could you describe the gap between the design industry right now and design education? I know you kind of spoke to the best programs that do that, but do you see, like, where do you think room for improvement is? Yeah, um, I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of programs are doing some great things. Um, I think that what we need to figure out really is what's going to keep people interested in studying design in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, because, um, you know, how do we attract high school students to a discipline that's now become so broadly defined, right? So, you know, when, you know, when parents come in for open houses, you know, the first thing I ask them is, how many of you read your news on your phone? 
you know, or how many of you used your phone today, right? Mm -hmm. All those interactions happen through the work of a designer. Even if you're reading a regular newspaper, somebody had to lay that out, right? right? So I think it's more what gets people excited about design because anybody can get the creative suite and make work. And, and now, you know, with, with Pinterest, anyone can download a really great template and make an annual report. Right. So what is the value of what we're doing and, and how do we stay relevant? And, you know, what, is, what does that mean in industry right now? So, so it's getting really complicated. Um, but I think, speaking specifically from my perspective of some things we're doing at Leslie, there's some things that we've been paying really close attention to. Um, one of them is that I don't think it's enough to just have curriculum that keeps up with industry. I think, I think that's expected, mm -hmm. and, and I hope that we do that. <laughs> um, but a lot of, there's a lot of great programs with really innovative curriculum, but having a curriculum isn't enough anymore. We're now looking at becoming content producers, and what that means is, is how do we put our stamp on design? How do we say this is important, this matters to us, and it should matter to you? Um, and so one of the things we've, we've done is we've launched a magazine at the College of Art and Design called Seen and Heard. And it, it grew out of the student voice at the school. There was, the students have a lot of ideas and we didn't have sort of a venue for their voice. Aside through their class projects and their class work, mm -hmm. you know, and student activities, we really wanted to give the students at the College of Art and Design a, a visual voice and a written voice. So. We launched a magazine through the design department, but it's interdisciplinary. It's open up to anyone, um, and we want it to be that way. So photo students, illustration students, film students, animation. And the idea is that it's student-written and student-driven. And so the students write the content. They're designing the content. All the visual assets are by the students. And that class is led by a really great design faculty member and also a writer. So. Um, we're working on volume two right now, but it's really exciting to see. And the first issue is 120 pages. Wow. That is an enormous magazine. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> and I read it, and I'm like, wow, the, the students, they have a lot to say. Mm -hmm. and, and they have a lot to say about things that matter. So I'm really excited. We're also launching a podcast with that. So we're trying to look at the magazine not just as, you know, this sort of static artifact, but as something that can be, that can have multiple touch points in terms of its communications. Right. So podcasts. Um, and then also web presence. So mm -hmm. it's it's just, we're just getting it off the ground now. It's still very much in beta version, but I'm really excited about that because I feel like it's, it's not just about the faculty providing content. I think the students have a lot to contribute. The other thing is we offer an online program. Mm -hmm. We have, so we have three programs that fall under the umbrella of design. We have a BFA in graphic design, uh, a BFA in interactive design, and then an online, completely asynchronous um, Bachelor of Science in Design for User Experience. And when we launched the, uh, the BS online, you know, we have classes like Typography 1 and Type 2 and um, Language of Design. Like we have what we would call studio courses mm -hmm. in the online environment. And I've kind of been tested by some of my colleagues, well, what do you mean by studio if there's no actual studio, right? right. <laughs> and I got a lot of chat, I was, I was, we were really challenged when we launched the program, like, how can you possibly teach typography online? Or how can you teach, you know, language of design online, which is like your graphic design one class. I think what, what we realized pretty quickly, that it's not about taking your existing 
class and trying to shoehorn it into an online program or to shoehorn it into sort of an online uh, learning management system. You have to completely rethink the way you teach it. Mm -hmm. And so you just basically go back to the learning outcomes from the course and you have to start from scratch and you have to really kind of rethink the methods in which you, you teach the content. And what's remarkable is that students are submitting work, we're seeing the work submitted, it's happening. I yeah. remember my colleague, uh, Jeff Reed, who teaches language of design online, I remember the first week he started teaching, he's like, I can't believe it's working. The students are <laughs> submitting work. It's there. <laughs> it was like this aha moment for all of us. Like, we can do this. Mm -hmm. Now it's got me thinking, well, if we're not doing six-hour crits or four-hour crits or whatever, how can we make the learning more blended? What from my in-person curriculum can be moved online now mm -hmm. so that maybe classes don't even need to be six hours or four and a half hours. Yeah. Maybe we could cut them in half. You know, I could certainly put my lectures online. Um, I already use a tool called VoiceThread to give students feedback in between classes. So I have a, if I have students who are sending me sketches midweek, I can give them verbal feedback through VoiceThread. And it's a lot more fluid than trying to write comments in a PDF file. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we're already seeing there's a lot of technology out there to kind of support this way of working. Mm -hmm. But I think overall that the next big wave in design education is going to be less about the content we're offering because arguably we should be offering relevant content. I think it will be about the dissemination of that content mm -hmm. and the way the way in which we offer that content. Yeah, and I even think too you could make the argument that it's going to be less and less about content because you have all these different design mm -hmm. camps and all of these different basically this design education cottage industry that's popped up because you can be doing it remote now. How does design education need to reconcile emerging technologies? And I mean like specifically AI, virtual reality, and some of the stuff that just is so new right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of already has. Um, you know, a lot of technologies and prototyping tools are becoming easier to access and easier to use. Years ago, I could have written a book in the early 2000s about Flash ActionScript because I had to build so many tutorials for the students. Um, but I don't have to do that anymore. There's, there's so many great prototyping tools out there now that students can use to, to do really, um, really believable uh, simulations for interactivity. And, and I mean, you know, our students are interested in AR and VR, I think. But one of the questions I ask them is, what is the value of integrating AR or VR into your work? How does, how does using these technologies um, positively impact or benefit the human experience because you know we are moving into a space where we're looking at immersive design environments and museums are doing this well already you know um, we have an alumni working at Richard Lewis Media Group and, and a lot of their work is, is developing sort of these immersive museum installations that become you know experiences for museum goers so for me how do we how do we create these meaningful experiences through the integration of technology in a project versus simply adding it as like a gimmick or a layer on top of something else. Mm -hmm. And so, and students are using uh, VR and AR. He had a student a few years ago, he used Unity to create uh, a virtual museum. And I, I believe his piece was awarded Best in Show in the AIGA uh, New Voices, Unique Visions uh, student exhibit. In ways that we've used augmented reality, which has been really exciting, is, is a few years ago we did a, a mapping project with the students where students had to rethink um, the campus map because Leslie University has three campuses we have Porter, Doble, and Brattle and they're all along 
um, about a one mile radius down Mass Ave. And so, and it's not about creating a prettier map, it was about creating a more usable map. And mm -hmm. so what we did is we teamed up with our director of access services at Leslie who put our students, paired our students up with threshold students. And these were students who specifically had any sort of like physical challenges relating to mobility or vision. And so what was fantastic is each uh, team had to navigate campus with a student. Um, we had one student with, with very, very low vision. Um, and then we had two students who used wheelchairs, automated wheelchairs to get around campus. And so our students had to navigate campus to go to one campus with them and sort of observe what that, what that meant, what that mm -hmm. entailed. You know, particularly when you're in an urban environment, you know, what happens when it snows? What happens during inclement weather? Yeah. You know, what are the safe pathways to get from one place to another? And so the value in running a project like this is this is where we can start to investigate how technology can really help something like this. So it's less about creating a prettier map, but like, okay, you know, one of the students was blind, right? So how does that translate now right. into a map? So we did see interesting use of technology come into this project. For the student with low vision, we had the students actually design a touch map so that the student could actually, you know, sort of count the tick marks to know distance. Yeah. Um, they also developed this, this app called Chirp, which um, grew out of a, a challenge the student had where the, the student had a seeing eye dog, but there was one particular building that had all glass in the front, and the dog couldn't decipher window from door because the whole building was glass. And so the student had expressed some, not a huge amount of frustration, but just was like, sometimes my, my dog walks me into the window and not the door because um, he can't tell the difference. And so that one particular challenge led to this really innovative idea that they came up with this app called Chirp where when the student would be in proximity to the building, that the building would chirp. It would let out a sound. Um, and also provide haptic feedback on the phone. So if the phone was in the pocket, they would know if they were coming into proximity. Um, and then there were also, you know, settings in there so that the phone wouldn't be chirping and vibrating every time the student was in proximity to a building. The idea is that it could sync to the student's schedule so it would know at approximate times yeah. when. It would you know, really understand the context that the student was in exactly. in order to be able to s solve the problem without creating new ones. Yeah, right, yeah. right. <laughs> So what do you think is the path forward for the future of design education? Uh, you spoke a little briefly about how uh, academia really has an opportunity to be at the cutting edge and really pushing forward what it can be. Um, and you know, maybe framing it in what needs to happen this semester, this year, next five years. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we should really be looking at like 2040 if we really want to think. There, there, I have two Two thoughts on this. One is either we, we really thoroughly examine what's happening now and see where we're at now and how we got here. How has all the things happening in our world in this moment, how is that affecting how we teach design? And then I think the other way of looking at this question is to say, okay, how should we be looking at it and looking at, say, 2040 or 2050, like looking really far ahead? And I have a couple questions left. Uh, I asked this question to all of my guests, what brought you to Boston and or why are you still here? But I guess a more relevant question is, why should students learn design in Boston and why, why do you continue to teach here? Yeah, um, it's funny, I read this question and this was like the one that scared me the most. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I was I was born in Boston. You know, I grew up in Massachusetts, and I, I went to two state schools in Massachusetts, and I've always worked in Massachusetts. So on paper, I fear appearing really provincial, um, and I might be. I might actually be really provincial. But I think for me, I there's a lot of complex reasons why people stay in the place where they grew up. You mm -hmm. know, family reasons. You know, responsibilities, um, all kinds of things. But I think. Why should students learn design in Boston, and why do I continue to teach here? I think Boston is a great conduit to other places. So, you know, some of our students stay in Boston, but some of them end up going on to New York or San Francisco or pretty much anywhere. Mm -hmm. I, I think Boston is a great landing place for students because there's a lot of opportunity here for them after school. So even though they may not stay in Boston, there's a pretty good chance that they can get work in Boston and at least launch their career here. Yeah. I, see, I see Boston as a place really where students tend to launch their careers and then they, and then from there they go off and they, they kind of explore the world and yeah. seek exciting things. Why I continue to teach here is just because, um, you know, I've taught in a few different schools, but I've, I really enjoy the students at Lesley University. They're probably the most humble and hardworking students I've ever worked with. And that's not to say I haven't enjoyed teaching in other places. I absolutely have. But it just feels like a place where, where I just really enjoy their ideas. Mm -hmm. they're, real, they're real serious, critical thinkers. I, I believe that the millennial generation is the generation that's really going to change the world. I just, I just think that. They're, the questions they ask are so much more... They just have a lot more depth than what I was thinking about at that age. So part of it is the students, and then part of it is my colleagues. I, I just I work with a really incredible team in the design department. My two core, the two core faculty in the department are Jeff Reed and Lisa Spitz, and they're a remarkable team to work with. So, you know, none of this, I can't take credit for any of or all of these ideas. It all comes through the work that happens in the department with, with my colleagues. So yeah, those those are my reasons. <laughs> people. Yeah, they're great. People. Yeah, the community. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, but that that's really lovely. And where can listeners find out more about you and the programs at Leslie, or anything else you'd like to to plug? Yeah, sure. They can find all of our programs on leslie.edu, um, and then also if they want to see more sort of insider or behind the scenes stuff that's happening in the department. It's sometimes it's student work or events. We have a fairly active Instagram page, and that's just Leslie Design. Awesome. Yeah, and I can definitely include those in the show notes, too, for anyone who's interested. Thank you so much. It was such an awesome conversation and um, a lot of really good ideas and things to think about, too, especially for um, people who are thinking about going back to school, people thinking about making a career shift, or even thinking about how, how to think about design moving forward. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk talk with me today. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. <laughs> the Boston Designcast is recorded at the Inno Lab at the Boston Public Library. Our sound is edited by Michael Coleman and our music is by Jason Dean Egan. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at boston.aiga.org. And if you want to support this podcast, consider becoming a member of AIGA Boston by going to aiga.org slash join. Until next time, bye. Boston Designcast is presented by AIGA Boston. It's produced by me, Sarah Crowell, and me, Michael Coleman. Our music is by Jason Dean Egan. And sound editing by Michael Coleman. For more information, check out our show notes or boston.aiga.org. <laughs> <laughs>